A few quick notes before today's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it on iTunes or other platforms where you listen. This is a huge part of helping us grow and it's much appreciated. This podcast is produced by Authentic Form and Function. We're a design and technology studio working in the real estate space. We help developers and architects innovate their work with unique brands, websites, and digital tools. Last year, we launched Amplify, a digital real estate marketing platform that combines high-touch custom design with out-of-the-box real estate marketing technology. Find out more at AuthenticFF.com Amplify. Finally, we want to hear from you. Email your feedback and ideas, as well as who else you should speak with, to podcast at AuthenticFF.com. I was very lucky to get to travel quite a bit and learn about different markets. You know, really just, you know, at that point in time, I was in my mid-20s and just felt I needed to experience something a little more than maybe what Des Moines or Iowa had to offer. On this episode, I'm speaking with Adam Fenton, principal and co-founder of Narrate Companies. Adam brings over 14 years of experience in direct equity real estate investment and development, having developed over 1,500 units valued at nearly 900 million. Raised in Iowa, Adam started his career at Principal Real Estate Investors on the Equity Investment Management Team. Seeking a change in lifestyle, he moved to Denver in early 2011 and ultimately worked alongside the teams at Holland Partner Group and BMC Investments. Adam has been responsible for the development of over 1,200 units in Denver's prestigious Union Station neighborhood and also focused on Denver's Cherry Creek North neighborhood while at BMC. Today, Adam is focused on growing a new type of real estate firm through Narrate. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump on in. Adam, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Chris, for having me. Uh, really excited to be a part of the show today and, and love what you guys are doing with this podcast. Yeah, thanks so much. Well, I want to jump right in. And I always love to learn about backstories on Transforming Cities. So when we first talked about kind of where you grew up and where you came from, to me, the movie Hoosiers or maybe even like Field of Dreams came to mind. I was kind of laughing at that, but give the listeners an overview of your roots. Yeah, sure. So originally from a small town, Iowa, you know, grew up in a town of 1,200 people literally in, in the middle of the cornfields. And what a great place to grow up. You know, we were able to ride our bikes around town at, you know, in second grade by ourselves and just a much different environment than what we have today and especially in the city, but an awesome, awesome place to grow up. You know, my, my dad was very involved in sports. So it was a, you know, huge, huge sports family. That's what our life revolved around. And, and I think, you know, it, it set a really good foundation, a really good base for, you know, what hard work is all about. And I think has transferred over into my life as an adult and, and work and everything else, family. So, you know, really, really good roots. And it, it's true what they say, you know, um, you know, people in the Midwest definitely have work ethics because you, you just don't know anything different. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And you told me that your both of your parents were coaches, if I recall correctly. And, and you mentioned sports were such a big part of your life. Specifically, basketball is actually kind of your sport of choice. Yeah. And you're going into kind of into high school and looking towards college, hoping for scholarships. Kind of what was that regimen like for you growing up? And actually, part two of that question, I'm curious, were your parents or your dad or your mom actually your your, your literal coach in high school? Or was that just sort of an early life thing? <laughs> yeah. So I'll answer the second one first, actually. So yes, my dad actually was my coach when I was in, in high school as well. So oh, cool. he kind of he kind of grew grew up with this. So he's, he was always our, you know, our coach when we were young. But he was always a high school coach at the same time. So as we got older, 
he was my coach as well and and my brothers and my sisters and my cousins and uh yes he's still uh he's still a coach to this day believe it or not mm. so that was uh that was great what a great experience and you know i think he was probably extra hard on me but that's because he expected a lot out of me yeah absolutely. and at the end of the day for the regimen you know i was i'm a short guy from the the cornfields of iowa so i had to work my tail off in order to be good at basketball you know uh, i'm only six foot tall six one i'm not not very tall for you know a college basketball player and the regimen was every day at 6 a.m. I'd get up, I'd go do my own personal workout. This is all through really kind of junior high and high school. So it really kind of set that precedent of schedule, regimen, sticking to something and being accountable for something. So it was every single day, you know, that, that was, that's what I did. And then that was even if it was in season as well. So I was playing a couple times a day really instilled, you know, that routine and, you know, taught me a lot about what it takes to uh, be successful. Yeah. Well, we've met in person, not to be a spoiler alert for everybody else, but we've met in person. We're both about six foot, six foot one white guys, and we both love basketball. So I feel your pain <laughs> of coming up through the basketball ranks and having to compete at the next level. But right. not to kind of get too far ahead of ourselves here, you did actually end up getting that basketball scholarship, all that hard work paid off, which landed you at a couple of different schools. So tell us about that trajectory. Yeah, so that trajectory, I was able to get a college scholarship coming out of, of high school and played at Drake University. So it's a D1 university in Des Moines, Iowa, great school. Went there, uh, ended up transferring to a junior college after I was there and played for a little while. And then, uh, you know, kind of got bit by the injury bug a little bit and started having ankle problems and just decided it was time to uh, probably hang them up. I knew I wasn't going to go pro and really concentrate on what that next step in my life was going to be. And uh, that's where I ended up going to the University of Northern Iowa, just because they have both finance and real estate degree there. That was something that was really, really appealing to me. So that that was, it, it definitely worked worked out and it paid off. And, um, you know, I think has helped get me to where I am today. Yeah. So talk to us about that finance and real estate degree stuff. Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I really thought I wanted to sell houses, you know, so I figured what what better way than go get a real estate degree to sell homes. And the University of Northern Iowa at that point in time, it was the only school in Iowa that you could get a, a real estate degree. I knew I wanted to be in business and I wanted to specialize and I like finance. So I wanted to go into the finance realm of it and then kind of layered the real estate on top of it. And then once I was there, just, you know, kind of opened my eyes up to a whole different world of, you know, commercial real estate. You, did, you know, when you're in small town Iowa, you don't think about that stuff. And you know, was able to to get into that program and was just exposed to everything there is in the commercial real estate world. So extremely thankful for that opportunity. And, uh, you know, kind of went into it, not really knowing, you know, thought I was going to be a realtor. Ended up going down a completely different path, but that's really how I ended up there. And then, you know, I just got lucky that uh, there's this whole other path that you can go down that is not single family homes. Yeah, I made a note in my notes from when we first chatted about the podcast and you were mentioning how this idea of, of apartments, hotels, industrial, retail, all these different classes were more or less opened up to you and kind of opened your eyes to the different possibilities. Another piece that you mentioned that you really enjoyed was the finance aspect of that world as well. Was that something that kind of came from a math background or an interest in numbers or did that just grow as you were in school? 
I have always kind of had a math background. It's something that's always come very easy to me, and I don't know why that is. You know, I'm definitely not an artistic person in any way, shape, or form. So I think the math component uh, was always the background. You know, it's just with finance, it's so powerful, and you can do so many different things with it. And you know, the ability to mix finance with real estate—it was like a dream come true almost. You know, it's like two of my favorite things get you know they come together. That's really kind of my background is math. And look, at the end of the day. Commercial real estate is all about the numbers. It really is. There's a million different things that go into that, but at the end of the day, you know, it has to be a profitable venture to whatever you're doing, whether it's development, buying something, you never want to lose money. So that's kind of the, you know, foundation of real estate really is the financial basis and the cash flow that these properties generate. So you eventually had an opportunity to dive into that world through an internship. And I think you mentioned to me that this was the last year of school, but Jokingly, you said I was already on the five-year plan, so it wasn't the easiest decision for you. But what was that all about? Where where was that opportunity? Yeah, that's that is right. So I I did bounce around a little bit and changed majors a couple times uh, throughout my my college career. So I was on on the five-year plan, and you know when I was at the University of Northern Iowa, I was in a real estate club, and they would always have different groups come in and speak to the you know the people who were part of the club. And there was there was a group called Principal Financial Group based out of Des Moines, Iowa, a huge insurance company. You know, they have a guy's fourteen, fifteen thousand employees, so fairly large. They actually have a whole investment arm, stock bonds and real estate. And they had their real estate folks there and something that was really intriguing to me and you know, they have a ton of internship opportunities that they offer students and was lucky enough to get an internship with principal. But part of that is you had to take eight months off of school, basically. So you you were almost a, not almost, you were a full-time employee and you had to go take eight months off of school and, and go and do that. But uh, it was a hard decision for me, like I said, because I had been in school so long at that point in time. But, you know, and speaking with my, my dad, he was like, you have to do it. He's like, it's such a, I know you've been in school, you want to get out. But at the end of the day, this is such an incredible opportunity. You have to take it. So I took his advice and uh, and did it and worked that internship for eight months and uh, you know that was really I think the catalyst to you know my career essentially at that point in time. Yeah, well let's let's talk about that jump into the early career moves phase of life. Did you end up at the same place? Did you did you go somewhere else? Where did you head after school? Yeah, yeah. So I went right back to principal right after school and. I knew what it was all about. I knew that you know I was in the investment management slash asset management division of the company. You know we were we were fairly large. Uh, you know so they were a huge institutional investor still to this day. When I was there, I think we were the third largest institutional investor in the U.S. and you know forty to fifty billion in assets under management. So fairly large. You know, I was just lucky enough. I really took that internship seriously and, and really tried to work really hard and ultimately paid off and came out of college and went right into uh, working at principal. And you you were telling me that you kind of worked between kind of Phoenix, Denver, Seattle, but you were still based out of Iowa and you kind of maybe had the itch to to set sail a bit. And then I think I also wrote down that recession was a factor at that point in time. You were kind of looking to the horizon and, and what was going through your mind at that time as a sort of a younger, just out of college young guy? Like what was going through your head? Yeah, so... I uh, had been in Iowa my whole life, essentially, and really, really enjoyed working for Principal. But they were based, you know, their headquarters to this day are still based out of out of Des Moines, Iowa, and and you, you essentially work these different markets. And I was very lucky to get to travel quite a bit and learn about different markets. You know, really, just you know, at that point in time, I was in my mid twenties and just felt I needed to experience something a little more than maybe what Des Moines or Iowa had to offer. And 
knew I would always be able to come back if I really wanted to, but, you know, just decided that I was going to make that jump and make that move. About that time, uh, the recession hit, the great recession of 2008, 2009. And, uh, at that point in time, I was just happy to have a job. And we got really, really busy at principal at that point in time, uh, cause we were, you know, managing all these assets that were in trouble or the tenants were in trouble. And so, you know, what a great learning experience. So that, that put my plans on hold for just a little bit as I just wanted to stay in a, in a nice secure job at that point in time. And that was 08, 09. And then, you know, kind of in 2010, mid 2010, kind of started getting that itch again. I was like, okay, things are starting to open up a little bit now. Feels like we're maybe going to start coming out of this recession. So that that point in time, I started looking for for other opportunities, and was was ultimately at that point in time, I was going to go to Chicago or I was going to go to Denver. It's going to be one of those one of those two markets. I had made my mind up. I have uh, really close friend groups in in both cities, and had spent a lot of time in both cities. So essentially, it was wherever I got a job on first. That's uh, ultimately where I was going to go. <laughs> so Denver came first, and, and now here you are. Denver came first, and here I am. Uh, let's set the stage for listeners then. You're you're now in Denver, Colorado. You're you're setting down some roots. I've got some friends here. Kind of the first pivot into different location. I'm excited to get into this because I I think it really sets the stage for not only the early career stuff, but then really what you're doing today, which I'm excited to get to in a couple of minutes. But what was your first role like in Denver, and what was the you know kind of what was the the, the title that you were at that point? So I came in, worked for a small private equity firm here, and they had just bought a non-performing loan portfolio. So essentially with a big partner out of the East Coast. So I was only there about five months. I had another opportunity that came up that, that I thought was more fitting to what I wanted to do. But uh, like it got me to Denver and uh, we, we had bought these non-performing loan portfolios. And essentially my job with uh, one other other guy from the uh, the equity firm was to really unwind this portfolio. So we we had bought bank loans, and you know there was all kinds of different strategies in play there. Where you know some were operating properties, some were you know half built condos in Chicago that we got back, uh, land in Vegas, an operating hotel in St. Louis, an office building downtown Denver that had been foreclosed on. So really, I'm very thankful for that opportunity because it pushed me way out of my comfort zone. I probably was not qualified to be doing what I was doing, but was put in that role and and really figured it out and just got exposure to some really interesting deals and talk about problem solving. That's all we did was problem solved all day long because you know this was kind of uncharted territories. So yeah, like I said, I was there about five months, but you know, feel like I got a you know a five year education in those five months. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and then I guess shortly thereafter, around around or in 2011, you you really transitioned into what we were chatting about as being a different kind of real estate group, which really is the springboard to what you're doing today. What was that group? And really, what were you looking for at that time, kind of moving out of that small equity firm's uh, style? Yeah, yeah. Good, good question. So I started working for Holland Partner Group in 2011. And uh, Holland Partner Group is based out of the Pacific Northwest. And they were opening a local office here. And, you know, I was friends with a, a guy named Eric Hagovic and he, a longtime developer here in Denver. And also, uh, you know, he was a friend from my principal days and we'd get together and, and ultimately he had an opportunity, you know, he had tied up a bunch of land throughout town. This is 2011 when not much was happening, but we, you know, Holland had a lot of money behind them to go buy mm-hmm. development sites. So, you know, he's, he said, all right, I sat down and he said, all right, and this will be about six months or so. 
And then uh, a week later, he calls me and says, I just put uh, two more properties under contract. So can, can you come over now? <laughs> so I did that. And, and part of the reason that I was, I think, looking to make a change to a company like this is, you know, all of the, all the investment properties that I had been involved with at that point in time are all in different markets. So there was something really appealing to me about working on projects in my own, my own city at that point in time or where I was living and really immersing myself into the local real estate community rather than kind of more the national real estate community. So that, that's really one of the big reasons why I wanted to make that jump. And you told me that you didn't know development at all as a direct quote. And we were kind of laughing about that sort of like trial by fire mode. But I mean, kind of like you were alluding to earlier, the the five months was like a five-year education. It seems like you moved into this role and it ended up becoming another immediate education piece. What was that like overseeing all those projects? Yeah, so it was great. And, you know, it's like I knew the financial aspect of it. And it's like I told Eric, I said, I don't know anything about development, but I would, you know, I'll come in, I'll work really, really hard, and I at least understand the finance component of it. So that transition was was actually great. You know, I went from working on portfolios of, you know, two to three billion dollars. So you're very high level, right? You don't you don't get into the into the details at all. And and development is the absolute complete opposite of that. You know, you work on one, two, three, maybe deals at a time. You know every single detail going on with that building and it's your baby, right? Like that's all you work on for, you know, three, four years. So it was a much different type of work, but something that was really enjoyable as well, you know, really knowing it inside and out and um, just, you know, kind of right time, right place type thing. And, and uh, you know, feel very fortunate for that opportunity to, to come in and, you know, still owe Eric a lot to this day. Because he, you know, I, I always joke with him. I was like, you never should have hired me because <laughs> I, I had no idea what I was doing. It seems like there came a point in time where, there wasn't a lot of process in place, but it allowed you guys to kind of put process in place. And it seems like there was a, a moment in time there where a corner was turned or, you know, kind of a similar analogy where deals started happening. You started becoming more comfortable with urban infill projects. Why the shift and kind of what started clicking for you and the team? You know, I think that just surrounding ourselves with really, really smart people, you know, for me, not really knowing development, you know, and I would be the first to admit that. But what I did know was how to put people around me that knew what was going on. And Eric allowed me to, to do that as well. You know, he, we, we were a pretty small shop at that point in time, but doing some pretty big deals. And, and we built a team out over time for sure. But in those early days, it was you know kind of learn the process a little bit, but then surround yourself with really, really smart people. And they kind of held my hand through the process. And you know, from architects to landscape architects to interior designers, to our, you know, we had a, an amazing construction team when I was at Holland as well. So really relying on others and then, you know, made a ton of mistakes, but never making the same mistake twice. I think that's a, that's a really big deal is, you know, we're all going to make mistakes, right? You just are, it's, it's going to happen, you know, but it's learning from those mistakes and not allowing them to happen again. To me, that's where the, the education comes from. And that's, in my opinion, what separates the good from the bad. Absolutely. What would you say a couple of the projects are that you worked on during that time that you you really hang your hat on and you're excited to share? Yeah, yeah. So uh, in my time at Holland there, you know, the first project I ever did was a project called Line 28. And it it was in the Highlands, Lower Highlands. It was literally the first project that was delivered out of the the Great Recession. And, you know, at that point in time, it's kind of interesting that, you know, $2 per square foot rents on apartments in Denver didn't exist. Um, There's maybe one or two projects, Sugar Cube uh, being one of them that maybe was above that, but not many. And, uh, you know, we're sitting here, we've underwritten like 205 a square foot in rents. 
you know, we delivered that project and it's smaller unit sizes. It was really one of the first projects in Denver to go smaller unit sizes. And it's kind of crazy now, you know, at that point in time, 730 square feet was considered a, a small unit size. And now it's, you know, trended even smaller. But we came out of the gate with, on that deal and we were hitting 267 a square foot in rent and just kind of blew right through it. And in my opinion, kind of set the mark for the entire market after that. Um, you know, we've seen how much development has gone on since 2011 here in Denver from an apartment standpoint. So I'm proud of that project just because it was my first, you know, it was my first one. It's like my, uh, that's like my newborn, my firstborn, right? And as I look at it now, there, there's definitely things I would have done different and, and shifted around. But uh, that, that was a, uh, a really cool deal that I still hang my hat on to this day just because it was the first one. And then I had a, you know, I had a great opportunity to work on a lot of stuff in the Union Station neighborhood as well. And we had bought some land down there and uh, was, was highly uh, very involved in a project called Platform at Union Station. And it was one of the first projects to deliver down in um, that neighborhood. That was when it was, you know, we were building this thing and it's desolate. There's not a soul in sight and it's, it's just dirt. Yeah. No, I remember those days. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, so, you know, I remember Eric and I being down there sometimes and we just kind of look at each other and like, it's got to come. It's going to, it's definitely going to. It ultimately, you know, got built out very, very fast. But Platform was a 21-story high-rise, still there to this day. Uh, really proud of that project because I think it's a classic project that in 20 years, people are still going to look at me like, that's a really that's a really cool building. So it's 287 units, uh, literally right on the commuter uh, platform on the backside of the station there. So great, awesome, awesome deal. And one of the really, I mean, still to this day, it's one of the high-end projects within town. And then... Um, you know, Union Denver, which is the Whole Foods down there. So I was really involved in that project as well and did all of the entitlement work and, um, you know, took it through the pre-development process and then uh, oversaw the construction of uh, the first part of the construction on that. I ended up leaving Holland as the towers were starting to go up. Hey, listeners, just a quick reminder that today's episode is brought to you by our firm, Authentic Form and Function. I wanted to let you know about an internal research project we recently completed, where we analyzed the digital strategy of over 75 commercial real estate projects across multiple asset and project classes. We distilled this research into an ebook called The Real Estate Website Blueprint, which you can download for free on our website at authenticff.com blueprint. In it, we provide several strategies and tactics you can use on your next project to better position in the market, increase project awareness, and accelerate leasing. To download the ebook, be sure to visit authenticff.com slash blueprint. Well, for anyone that's listening who wants to visit Denver, has a plan to visit Denver, uh, in the future, I definitely recommend going and checking out that neighborhood. Sort of a, a unique pocket, I would say, of of downtown Denver. It feels a little bit separate from from downtown. I think Union Station has this natural dividing line in between some of the the pockets in that area of town, but really well built out area, uh, really nice wide sidewalks, and it just feels feels like a different city almost when you're when you're walking through that area. So I, I definitely recommend that to any visitors. Yeah, 100%. That neighborhood is, I think, one of the most uh, most unique and one of my favorite in town. So a handful of years later, you know, you kind of cut your teeth at Holland Group, it seems like. You ended up transitioning over to BMC Investments back to private equity. So I want to know what drew you back to that firm. Uh, and actually, BMC is pretty well known around here, but give the listeners a sense of what they're known for. Yeah, so BMC Investments is ran by uh, Matt Jobin. He's he's the CEO and uh, one of the most dynamic and unique people I've ever been around. A complete visionary. 
And uh, but, you know, the reason I was drawn to BMC, so it's a BMC is a local developer and real estate investor essentially. So they do really kind of high end development, mostly focused in the Cherry Creek North neighborhood, a little bit outside of that. And we can talk about the Cherry Creek neighborhood in a minute. And then they also invest in C-class apartments. Um, and I think they have about six or 7,000 in their portfolio. And, you know, I was really drawn to to Matt um, and his personality and, and knew I would really learn a lot from him. And for me, at that point in time, I wanted to make another shift. You know, now I was working on projects that were in Denver, but I really wanted to start working on projects that were less institutionalized, I guess, for lack of a better word. So really private high net worth investors invest in these deals. And it's just a, a completely different dynamic than if you have uh, large institutional partners. And it allows you to, I think, um, and this probably kind of leads into where our conversation will go, but you know, no disrespect to institutions, but at the end of the day, they're worried about the dollar, right? They're just trying to make money. That is their first and foremost focus. And that usually means cutting corners. That usually means they don't care about design, right? You have institutions that don't care about the city, you know, because they're not even here. So that's, you know, I was really drawn to Matt and what he was doing and the vision that that he had. And, you know, it was a group of young guys, you know, we were all, we're all still under 30 or sorry, 40. Um, you know, so it was a young and a young group, and and he's someone who pushes you outside your comfort zone on a daily basis. And uh, I'm a huge believer in getting outside your comfort zone because that's where all your growth comes from. Well, this this definitely leads into what you're doing today, and I, I think I'm excited to dive into this part of the the conversation because I strongly feel like we're having a before it all happens conversation right now. I think you're, you guys are going to be doing some exciting things in the upcoming years. Um, you ended up transitioning out of BMC for quite a long time. I think two or three months just to sort of move out on your own and, and start this company called Narrate without getting too ahead of myself. Why don't you give the listeners an understanding of, of why you transitioned out and kind of what you were wanting to get started on your own? Yeah. Yeah. So I did. I transitioned out. I, got, I think it was over three months actually as I was thinking back. But it was one of those ones where we still had a great, you know, Matt and I still had a great relationship. And I just said, hey, this is, you know, this is ultimately what I want to do, but I didn't want to leave him in a bad spot either. So I had some projects I was working on that, you know, I'd been working on for four years at that point in time that I had a lot of knowledge about. So I felt the right thing to do was stay there while, uh, you know, those projects finished up so we could have a good smooth transition and not, not be left in a, in a bad spot, right? It wasn't one of those ones where it's like, hey, I want to do my own thing and here's two weeks. So, um, you know, it just felt like the right thing to do. And, you know, we still have a, a great relationship to, to this day. And then uh, the, I think the second part of that question was, why did I ultimately want to transition out of BMC and, and go start my own thing? And for me, I have two young boys and I wanted to be a little more in control of my time that I would spend with them. And ultimately, I want to start traveling a little more than I've done in the past. And, you know, it's just one of those things where, I just want to kind of control my own destiny and felt that I had all, you know, with all of the experience that I had had at, at principal and Holland and at BMC that I had the skill set uh, and the tools to, to do it on my own and um, thought I could bring it all together essentially. So what were those, what were those early months like? I mean, you know, taking a step back, first of all, moving on to your own is, is a huge, you know, huge decision and huge venture all on its own, but then actually getting down and sitting at the desk and doing the work. What were those first few months or first six months like? And any crazy stories or sort of second thoughts, uh, you know, so to speak, happening at that point? Yeah, I was all over. I was an emotional wreck. Uh, <laughs> is probably how I would describe it, right? 
And it's just a lot of highs and a lot of lows. And that was something coming out of the gate that I wasn't probably as prepared for. So, you know, I had been a W-2 employee my entire career. And that, that, that steady paycheck was always there. And now, you know, I'm sitting here looking, and it's like, shit, I just left a really good job. And I got to put food on the table now. And I have, I have no plan, um, generally speaking. I know I want to do real estate, but that's about it. And um, really just did not have a clear, clear vision on what it wanted to be or uh, what I wanted to do. And so it was highly emotional in those, those first few months. And, you know, I was kind of scurrying around and trying to find anything I could dig up. And, you know, if it came across my desk, I gave it consideration. And that, that just wasn't a very, you know, it wasn't fruitful in any way, shape or form. And, and really had to sit down, sat down with one of my mentors and he just, you know, he, he's like, what is your plan? What is your vision? And I had, I had done. Um, I was like, I don't know. So I took a little time uh, to think about it and, and, you know, it's always evolving. It's still evolving to this day, but really at that point in time, just kind of thought about, okay, here's what I'm good at. Here's the skill set that I have. And, you know, kind of looked at the competitive landscape throughout Denver and, and, and within real estate and said, okay, you know, really honed in on a, a specific strategy at that point in time. Yeah. Well, let's get into that then. So, so talk to us about the purpose of Narrate. Talk to us about that that thesis and that strategy and, and, and what sets you apart? Yeah. Um, so basically, Nary, we're focused on urban infill development within Denver. And we like the smaller stuff for a multitude of different reasons. But we, you know, we're looking for sites that typically are 12,000 to call it 20,000 square feet, mostly all multifamily is what we're focused on, multifamily for rent. That's the, that's the space that I've been in. That's the space I like. I understand it. I think it's, uh, you know, as we're kind of seeing in this, in the pandemic right now, you know, it's just resilient, you know, property, other property types, commercial, you know, retail, office, hotels, right? They're, they're just getting crushed right now. So I like the multifamily space just because shelter ultimately is a, it's, it's a life necessity. So demand's never going to go away. It's going to, you know, your, your rents are going to ebb and flow, but that demand's never going to go away. So I, I like, I like that. Most of our projects are range in size of 30 units up to, I think our biggest one is 74 units, but that's the size we like, as I mentioned before. And, you know, I think there's a couple of different reasons. One is just from a risk standpoint, you know, you're looking at lease up risk, you're looking at construction risk. I'm not a huge risk taker. I'm about as conservative as you possibly can be uh, to be a developer, I guess. That's probably my uh, conservative Iowa roots is my is my guess, but uh, you know we like the smaller projects just from a risk tolerance standpoint, financing standpoint, and then you know at the end of the day too, I do believe that you know tenants or residents are more drawn to you know these boutique living experiences. Uh, once you get you know above 27 years old, you don't want to live with 400, 500 other people. You want to live in these smaller projects, and I actually think that out of the pandemic, uh, it's going to become even more more true that people like these smaller buildings, just less people, less touch points, those type of things. And then, you know, kind of the last component of it is really just a design. You know, I do believe that on smaller projects, they can be more impactful to the neighborhood. We're not trying to design, you know, block long cruise ships. You know, we have just less of it. And I feel like you can, you can design really cool buildings that really fit into the neighborhood and, um, you know, make it better than it was before. So we, we like that. And then, you know, kind of, I, I, I guess the last component of why we focus on this, this small stuff is that I do believe there's a competitive advantage in the marketplace because the small mom and pa guys, they, they, you know, you can't go develop a 10, 12, you know, $30 million project. You just, you don't roll out of bed and do that. So you have to kind of understand it. You have to know the process. 
but the big boys can't do it either because they have infrastructures in place that cost a lot of money and, and these, these deals don't kick off enough fees and those type of things to make it worth their time. So it's, you kind of play in this, this middle ground a little bit now. Um, what I would say too is it is a little bit more difficult because there's not a lot of contractors that play in that space, like general contractors. So you, uh, there are definitely positives, but I'm not saying there's not groups out there that, that don't do it, but it's just there's a lot less of them. You touched on something there that I'm, I'm curious to dig into a little bit more. And that is, um, you know, we see headlines quite a bit given the pandemic and sort of post pandemic, what's next, you know, open ended questions, you know, cities want more, people want more. It's uh, to your point, I think it's less about these cruise ships that are being developed and kind of building communities. I'm curious how the, the current mindset of an entire people group is impacting your outlook and maybe decision making on new project opportunities moving forward. And I, and I asked that through the lens of, of just design and maybe community building, quote unquote. How does that impact you all moving forward? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And I don't know if I have all the answers to it, to be honest with you. We're, we're trying to study that. We're trying to understand what that's going to look like as we continue to move forward here. What I would say is, I think from a tenant experience, you know, you're going to maybe see more voice type activation, if you will, uh, or automatic doors, just areas where people are just, you know, we just don't touch things anymore. Um, I, you know, I don't think the living experience is going to change a whole lot, to be honest with you. I think people, you know, I think more space, um, common area space is good and then outdoor space, but really hard to do in, in an urban environment where most of our projects are located. It's just that we, we just don't have the land to, to do things like that. But we were, to be honest with you, kind of trending in that, uh, you know, so now I kind of go to common areas and those type of things, the the lounges and these projects and outdoor spaces. And we were kind of trending in this direction already, I would say, where it's more, uh, it kind of has this hybrid approach, if you will, where it's kind of workspace, right? Because a lot of people are working from home and I think they're going to continue, you know, more people are going to continue working from home. Uh, I don't think the office spaces are going away uh, entirely, but I think the dynamic is going to change a little bit. So we're really focused on providing spaces now, and we were kind of doing this anyway, where you can you can you know it's comfortable to work in, but then it's also if you're not trying to work, it's also comfortable to you know sit down there with a friend and have a drink or or whatever it may be. So it's really you know so when we're looking at these spaces, it's I'd say they're flexible, if you will. So you can you can have a little your private little area over here, but there's also the ability that if there's a larger group that wants to be a part of it, you know that it all comes together. So it's really being thoughtful about how we lay stuff out. And, you know, I was actually just going through it yesterday on one of our projects, the lounge area, and we were shifting stuff around now, just trying to, you know, get more separation basically between seats and and the different spaces. So I think that, you know, overall, it was kind of a long-winded answer. I think just being really thoughtful about people in in their space, I think is going to be hugely critical in these projects going forward. And and look, it's a challenge in these smaller buildings because we just don't have the space that uh, some of the larger projects have. But, you know, I think that, uh, you know, just with, you have to be thoughtful about it. You have to be really thoughtful about it, not just throw something together and, and work with your design team on that. And then, uh, and then over to the, you know, within the unit and the living, uh, living spaces within units, you know, we're seeing a little bit of a trend towards bigger spaces, you know, more space, dens, those type of things, which I would argue at the end of the day, I don't, I don't know if that's going to be a trend in the future or not. And the only reason I say that is everything is cost driven, right? Like if you were given the option to live in 700 square feet versus 400, most people are going to choose 700, but there's a cost factor to it at the end of the day. I think the interesting thing to watch will be if you start seeing 
tenants bunk up or you know have roommates. Denver right now is not a it's not a roommate city. Everyone loves their own space, their own apartments. So it'll be interesting to see if people go more back to a roommate situation in order to get more space. But then it's like, well, now you have another person in your unit too. So it'll be very interesting to to see. You know, we are in some of our projects adding a couple of stacks of larger one bedrooms with dens that we might not have done in the past and we'll, we'll see we'll see how they go but they're you know they're expensive it's a lot of square footage and um, you know costs are very high in Denver right now I made a note here that you'd really try to have a thoughtful pre-development process. And you mentioned the the word thoughtful just a couple minutes ago. So I want to circle back to that really quickly. We talked a little bit about kind of just the right team, pulling the right team together for these projects that kind of all align on the same type of vision. So, you know, less about, you know, bottom lines and cutting corners and more about kind of aligning on this core design vision and this vision for this community that you're building at a more boutique level. How important have you found that to be as you embark on some new projects with Narrate? Yeah, no, it's it's hugely important. And um, the pre-development process uh, within development is probably the most risky, I would say, just because you've usually bought the land, uh, you're going through pre-development, but you don't have anything to show for it, but you're spending a lot of money. And what, what happens is uh, in most development processes, architects draw it, contractor bids it, it's over budget, then you VE it, and you do that three or four times. And it's not an efficient process and it just takes you a lot longer to get there. So I'm a firm believer in slowing down to go fast. And what I mean by that is we're not trying to just slam this thing home in pre-development as fast as we possibly can. We are bringing a general contractor to the table early on in the process. They're helping us give pricing guidance all throughout the process. So what we're trying to essentially avoid is the you know the value engineering that the major value engineering. There's always going to be some sort of call it more budget alignment rather than than value engineering, but you're always going to have a little of that. You know, just making sure that you're getting the most bang for your buck for whatever you're doing. But it's really about trying to uh, not have you know have to do that three or four times. And I think part of that too is we go into these projects with really what I consider realistic budgets upfront. And I think that that is that is key as well because if you don't have a realistic budget, you're never. You're, it's always going to be a battle to try to get to that number. So you know, and and uh, I have a rule too. Uh, you know, and it's, it's the no asshole rule. And uh, you know, so so I mean, that's part of you know having my own company now is that uh, you know we get to choose who we work with, and we only want to work with the best. We want the process. We want people to enjoy the process too. And ultimately, be very, very proud of uh, whatever the product is at the, at the end of the day. Um, but we don't want to be battling the whole time either. So it's it's really bringing the best and brightest folks together and having a really, really great experience while we do it. Mm. I want to jump ahead to kind of a two part question as we begin to wrap up, and that really kind of comes down to, you know, number one, what do you want Narrate to be known for? Kind of looking ahead in the upcoming years, and then part two would be in those upcoming years, the next one, three, five years, what are you most excited about as the company grows and as you get some projects online? Yeah, no, great, uh, great, great question. So look, I'd say for us, you know, we want to be known, narrowly wants to be known for providing amazing experiences to whoever we're involved with. And, you know, we want to build strong communities and that's really, really important. We want to have a, you know, a positive impact on these neighborhoods that we're going into and building projects and, and that, that's something that's really, really important to me. 
at the end of the day. And I think there's a huge value to that. And I think I feel a responsibility to do that as well. Um, I, it's just not being done enough, in my opinion, throughout town. You know, it's, it's, it's just simple things and it's just giving a damn, you know, we do. And, um, you know, kind of goes back to being, being thoughtful and, you know, there's always constraints and things, but, you know, just having the right team there with you and, and caring, I think goes a long, long way. And, you know, hopefully our projects come off as that. And, you know, I want everyone in town and in the neighborhoods and that was a part of the project to be proud of these projects once they're done. And really it's just about providing great experiences to the end users. Um, that's really what we're all about. Mm. And as you look ahead and you're, I, I can sense the excitement in your voice. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on for you all. Ryan Lawless came on board recently. Talk to us about what you're looking forward to in the next few years. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I partnered up with Ryan Lawless. He's uh, one of my best friends. I've known him 10 years. He was one of the first guys I met when I moved to Denver and he has a really extensive history in the value add uh, kind of uh, B, C value add apartment space. So we've teamed up. I wanted to get into the, um, to that space and just honestly didn't have enough time to focus on that with all the development stuff we had going on. And he wanted to get into development space, but couldn't really do that because he's focused on the value add space. So we've partnered up under, under one company and, um, you know, are really going. So we're just, we're still going to do development in Denver. And that, that's our, that's our primary focus from a development standpoint is going to be these small boutique projects, like I mentioned in Denver. And uh, maybe we're poking around at Salt Lake a little bit from a development perspective as well. And we would take the same strategy there that we're employing here. A lot of really good fundamentals that we like in that market. But then we're also going pretty big into the, uh, you know, the value add space. So class B apartments or we buy a C, we bring it to a B. And we just feel there's a huge opportunity there, but mostly outside of Denver. You know, Denver is very tough. There's a lot of investors who are chasing uh, yield here. Um, and there is no yield um, because there's so many people chasing it. So we're, we're focused on you know, basically markets that are less than a two-hour flight from Denver. So we're, you know, we're looking at Phoenix a little bit. We actually are under contract on uh, over 250 units down in uh, Oklahoma City right now. So we like that market a lot. There's a lot of good fundamentals down there with the max exodus from California. And then a lot of people, a lot of people coming up from Texas as well. So we like that market. And we'll also look at Kansas City. Ryan has done a, a fair amount of investments there and I have family that live there. So I know, know we know that market fairly well. And then uh, we're looking at Salt Lake too. And we've, we've tossed around Boise, but I don't, you know, we just haven't really gone and solidified our relationships or anything there quite yet. But that's kind of what we're looking at. Um, you know, and ultimately at the end of the day, our goal is to have about 65 to 70% of our portfolio be existing cash flowing buildings. And then the remaining, call it 30 to 35%, will be uh, new development projects. So we want to, we want that good balance and, um, you know, um, just trying to create long term steady cash flow. That's kind of our goal for us at the end of the day. No, that's great. Yeah. And, I'm really excited about this next question, which is usually the final question on the podcast, but you know, kind of taking all that you have have learned and and all that you have, I would say, kind of pulled in from all of the experiences you've had over the last, you know, 10 years or so with all of these great mentors and, and partnerships. I'm always really curious to see who you think we should be paying attention to that's doing amazing work out there, groundbreaking work, inspiring work that you're excited about. So before we start to wrap up here, who comes to mind for that is and, and is it really kind of in your own lane or is it people doing other things out there? A little a little of both, I would say. You know, so one one group in particular is Westfield and, and those guys over there, Jonathan Alpert and 
I just think they're progressive. You know, they 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 did the new Mission Ballroom. They're just pushing the envelope on on things that haven't been necessarily done in Denver and those type of projects. So, you know, I, I think that uh, that they're definitely someone to keep an eye on. You know, Gravitas Development, uh, Ryan Diggins. I, I actually don't even know him, but love all of the projects that he does. I, I you know I feel like we have a very similar take an approach on how we look at projects and impact, you know, he, he just does really cool stuff. And, uh, you know, that, that I think are, are changing the city in a very positive way. And then probably the last one is not a local group, but they're actually out of Portland. It's a group called Gorilla Development. And these guys, these guys are outside the box. They're real estate guys, but they are outside the box. And uh, from a design perspective, they're, they're pushing the envelope from a naming perspective, from the type of projects they're doing. And then they're very interesting too, because they kind of take a, I guess I'd call it a social capital approach, um, where they're necessarily not pushing rents as high as they possibly can, but really trying to kind of hit that, that market for the creatives and the people who are getting priced out of a lot of areas. So they'll go in and do really cool stuff and then not charge the full rent that they potentially could. And basically going back to investors saying, Hey, this, you know, um, this return is enough. Could we get it higher? Yes. But there's a social, a social component that comes along with it. Uh, and I can tell you, there are very few developers that, that are doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we've actually had um, Gorilla Development as a previous guest of the Transforming Cities podcast. So yeah, that's right. That is right. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I love, I, I love them. I mean, I don't know those guys either, but love, uh, love everything they're doing and, and follow them very closely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Check out the archives of Transforming Cities. We have a, we have a great episode um, with Gorilla and Anna actually popped on for one of our COVID episodes too. So um, 100% agree with you, Adam. They are doing uh, some, some great work out there. Well, look, the time has come, Adam, to roll out the red carpet for you. There's nothing left to do here except have you tell the world what, what you're up to and, and where they can find you online and track you down and maybe stalk you and send you messages. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we are, uh, our website is narrateco.com. So it's N-A-R-A-T-E-C-O.com. And then um, on Instagram... I'm not sure where we're at on Instagram, to be honest with you. I'm not sure we've done it. We're, uh, we're kind of ramping up right now and, and actually been talking to some different folks. But, uh, you know, we'll start posting a lot, a uh, lot out there. And then, and then we're on, uh, I'm on LinkedIn as well. And then, uh, you know, we, we actually are just setting our company LinkedIn up. So that's where we are. I'm not sure how LinkedIn even works, if there's a direct address or, or what. But, uh, you know, I think narrateco.com is, is probably the best place to reach us. And um, you kind of see the projects that we have going on and then kind of what we're all about, what we've talked about today. Yeah, fantastic. We will uh, we'll track everything down and put all those links in the show notes so listeners can pop over and reach out. Adam, thanks so much for joining us today on the show. We really appreciate your time. Hey, I appreciate it. Uh, and keep up the great work. Keep up the great work. Thanks so much. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at AuthenticFF.com slash Transforming Cities, or you can simply subscribe through your favorite apps, including iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for joining us.